Thank you, Brad. We appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here once again, and uh, it's uh, good good to see you this morning. Before I get started, uh, I had some outlines out there. I don't know if uh, uh, anybody needs one. If you do, I've got a couple of guys that will give them to you if you just raise your hand. If you'd raise your hand and need one, you need, we've got a bunch of them. Anybody need an outline? Now, you can take one and use it as kindling if you want to. I don't... It, that, that will not offend me, okay? Um, the, the only thing that I always say, and my, my, my congregation knows this, I have a rule about outlines, is that if I prepare them, don't throw them away at church, okay? Um, don't leave them in the book racks or in the, the uh, trash cans. They have to take them home. If they don't want to keep them, uh, then, they, again, you can use it as kindling or whatever you want to do with it. Uh, but, uh, and with the weather up here, you may need that kindling. Um, <laughs> I, I will be honest with you, uh, I, I, uh, I had come up expecting to celebrate the warmth of spring in Pennsylvania, and uh, lo and behold, I'm probably one of the few Southerners that now has the, um, the, the experience of driving through uh, a snow squall uh, on the way here, um, and so that will be uh, very interesting to tell uh, Southerners what that's all about when we return. But I will say this, uh, coming uh, and driving through that kind of weather was worth it to see that newest little one, uh, little Bailey. Um, I had not seen her yet, and so uh, it was worth driving through all that uh, bad weather to see her. I've never seen a child that gives and dispenses smiles the way she does. Uh, It's incredible. Uh, And so when you see that, it's worth it. Uh, for, for grandparents, and so we're, we are enjoying uh, our time, and it's good to be with you. Ephesians 4 this morning, and um, this, uh, this is the kind of message that I will say at the very outset that as we look at it, and again, it's a reminder to believers, it's the kind of message that oftentimes we will say, yep, that's great, that's good, I agree with it, Pastor Gray, and I am so glad that the person across the room or sitting next to me was here to hear it. And they need it. And I am so glad. And so get them. Okay. Well, here's the thing. We need to understand that this was written so that we can apply it to ourselves. And I want us to keep that in mind as we go through this. These verses in this passage are not new. But they uh, are a reminder to us. And we should go back to passages like this very, very often and remind ourselves of what the Scripture says, that we are to look like and act like as genuine believers. And if those things are not present, we need to do some very serious introspection. I did not realize that you were doing the Lord's table today, but I think this message is going to fit in very well with that. Because as we do some introspection, and we should, because after all, the Scripture tells us, that we should not take of what we're about to partake in unworthily. And so therefore, we need to do some serious uh, inspection, introspection of our own hearts. And this is a message that I think will do that very thing. The first verse of the fourth chapter is a transition in the epistle. And uh, it's very typical of Paul, who in all of his epistles, he has a pattern for the most part, whereby he will 
present the doctrinal foundation and the basis for all that he is going to write them. And so that will be the first part of the epistle. And then he will spend the latter part of the epistle and close it out normally with the practical aspect of it. And so that's what we have in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is one of the great prison epistles. And it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, book and one that I do not believe we will ever exhaust this side of eternity as far as the principles to be learned. Uh, and it is, it is a wonderful thing. But there is much for the believer to learn in this particular uh, part, this section, again, like I say, which is the practical section. And I have a quote there in the opening that uh, gives us a summary, and it provides context for us. And this commentator says, this, this marks the transition from the positional to practical truth, from doctrine to duty, principle to practice. When we received Christ as Savior, we became citizens of His kingdom and members of His family. Along with those blessings and privileges, we also received obligations. The Lord expects us to act like the new persons we have become in Jesus Christ. He expects His uh, standards to become our standards. His purposes, our purposes. His desires, our desires. His nature, our nature. The Christian life is simply the process of becoming what you are. Too many Christians are glad to have the spiritual security, blessings, and promises of the gospel, but have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. That is a very powerful statement there at the end. And I think that's very true. Why do we not see more influence from the church on the world, I think is exactly due to that very fact is that we have a lot who are uh, in the church today, and I, again, I, I do not come here to berate you. I am speaking very generally and generically as uh, we see this uh, characteristic across our nation and really the world. But they, again, they have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying the commands. There is the reason why we are not seeing the influence of the church upon the world the way it should be. And I think that's a very significant thing. And so, again, what does that say to us? Well, we, we need to get serious about this life that we have in Christ if we claim to be one of his own. We, we'd better get serious about this because this is our life. And so I want to talk about the walk of the new man. And so this is very important. Now, again, uh, I'm not going to go through all this for sake of time this morning. As I always say, if I spend too long, I may not be invited back, and that would not be a good thing. So uh, you see uh, in the introduction there, there are, Paul uses this walk analogy. And, of course, that, that is the idea of walking, being a disciple on a daily basis. He uses this five times in the book of Ephesians, and I've given that to you there, and you can look at those. But chapter 4 begins by admonishing, as I said, believers to walk worthy of their calling, which means living godly and properly in everyday life. So what does that look like? Well, we, wanna, we want to answer that. And so this, this section from 17 to, tw uh, to, to 32 
uh, I've divided into two, two sections, and let's look at them this morning. So first of all, we look at character, characteristics of the new walk. Characteristics of the new walk. Now, we did not read these verses, so let's, let's look at these for a moment. Uh, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness. So characteristics of the new walk is what we're looking at in that section. And in verses 17 to 19, we begin by looking at what this walk does not look like. Those things which should not be characteristic of those who are genuine and those who are a child of God. So let's look at that for a moment. There are, there are two things that he, that he zeroes in on here that it should not be part of the new walk, you and I, who claim to be a child of God, these things, we had better be careful, and we had better, again, do that introspection and see if these things are a part of our life or not. And if they are, there are some things that we need to do in order to get rid of those things in our heart and life. But what does he say? The first thing is thinking like the world. Thinking like the world. And he mentions, or like the, the Gentiles. Now, again, he's talking mainly to a Jewish audience here. And he's using the, the Gentiles as an illustration. You know, our Lord did that as well in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about materialism. And he's talking about, he says, look, um, you know, you, uh, your father knows that you have need of all these things. Don't have the mindset of the Gentiles who are very materialistic. Paul is kind of doing that same idea. He's saying, look, the Gentiles have this reputation for the thinking improperly. Uh, and he says, he's not saying that, that the Jewish nation can't do that. He's saying, but look at them as an illustration of those who don't think right and don't emulate them is what he's saying. And so we ask a couple of questions. There are two important and legitimate questions we have to ask about that. And the first one is, why is this not accepted? Why can't we think like the world? Well, we, we, because the world cannot truly think correctly, uh, generally speaking. Now, that does not mean they're not smart, they're not intellectual, and some of them even aren't brilliant. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the, the, the academia-type intellect here. Mainly, we're talking about, first and foremost, spiritual thinking. But all other thinking, by the way, as a believer, stems from spiritual thinking. And so, he uses this word. He says, they, they cannot think 
or live correctly because, notice the phrase there, they live or they walk in the futility of their minds. Isn't that an interesting word? The word futility means vanity. It's like a mirage or an illusion, that which is imagined but not actually true. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Do we see this lived out in the world, in our nation, every day? Absolutely. There are those that think that there's a certain way of life, there's a certain way in which uh, everybody should live, and uh, we're going to do things in order to make uh, life happen, and it's going to be all nice and wonderful. Again, the bottom line is that the world today is trying to set up for themselves some sort of utopia, which is futile and it's vanity. And what are they doing? They're using politics to try to achieve it. Can I just say this? It'll never happen. It'll never happen. It's, it's in their minds. And again, we think, well, how? You ever watch, uh, do you ever watch the news? I know you do. And, you ever, and I know the answer to this one too, but I'm going to ask it. You ever watch the news and get frustrated? I know you do. And here's the thing. When we, we, when we watch the news, we, here, here's the question that comes to our mind. How can they think that way? Well, there's an answer. Because they live and they walk in the futility of their minds. You see, folks, those who do not know God, those who deny God, those who have nothing to do with Him and His Word cannot and will not ever think correctly. It'll never happen. And so they live and they walk in the futility of their mind. You know, Proverbs 1.7 gives us the foundation for all correct thinking. I remember I used to share this verse with my students before I gave them an exam. And I would say this, you, and I would try to encourage them, you are smarter than the smartest professor in all the colleges in the United States. Of course, that's not hard to do now. But uh, back in the day, uh, it was a little more difficult. And uh, the reason why is that if you know the Lord, that is the beginning of all knowledge. Of course, my students never believe me. But it's true, isn't it? Proverbs 1.7, what does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise what? Wisdom and instruction. It is not, and it should never be surprising, that we have those, again, in the world that are going to act worldly and think worldly. The ungodly will always act ungodly. And so I say that to say this, Christian, when you're seeing all that is going on around you, when you read the news or hear it or see it, here is the reaction that we should have. We should not get frustrated or angry in the sinful sense. We should say that is not surprising because those who tragically do not know the Lord can never think in the way they ought to. And you know what it ought to do? It ought to burden us instead of frustrating us at those who know not Christ. And therefore, that's the motivation, is it not, for the gospel. So they don't think right. How did this occur? Well, notice I've given you there, he says, their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. He gives those four statements. He's saying, you want to know how this happened? There it is. 
You want to know how it happens again in our world and in our society? There it is. It hasn't changed. The world does what it does because it thinks the way it thinks. And when it thinks outside the Word of God, it is always going to be this way. And we need to understand that. My friends, that's what sin does. And we need to understand that they can never think correctly. In fact, Paul, what does he say in this very familiar verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14? He says, but the natural man, that is the one who does not know God, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. How come he can't know them? Because those things are spiritually discerned. When the world again looks at the things of God, they can never fully understand them or grasp them because they do not have Christ in their heart. We're coming up to Easter as it has been announced. And and, uh, one of the things that I often dread is to see the world's perspective on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, I do not enjoy um, Hollywood or other film, world, uh, secular uh, Uh, depictions of the resurrection because I know that somewhere along the line they're going to get get it wrong, (laughs) and they usually do. And we always have these these articles that will come out in in some of the, the, the secular publications trying to explain the resurrection in their own terms. Folks, they'll never be able to explain it the way it should be. Here's here's my suggestion. Don't pick up Time Magazine's perspective on the resurrection. You go and read 1 Corinthians 15. Can someone say amen? Amen. Okay, I just want to see if you're out there. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying amen if you feel like saying amen, all right? So let me hear it every now and then. I know you're awake. Notice here a statement here. Unsaved men have illusions in their own minds. They see mirages of all kinds and imagine them to be real. But they are not. They believe all sorts of theories, scholastic ideas, and such like, and would even bring this blessed book to the bar of their theories instead of bringing their theories to the test of the Word of God. The Christian ought to be concerned about these things and not walk in the delusions of the fleshly mind for these poor Christless men, whatever their talents, whatever their culture, whatever their education, have, the understa- have their understanding darkened and have never been born of God and are incapable in divine things. H.A. Ironside wrote that. And by the way, he died in 1951. Interesting. And so there's that, that's a great statement on the perspective, or maybe we call it this, the worldview that those who do not know Christ, this is always going to be their perspective. And therefore, we come to this conclusion. Whatever we see them doing in our world, and by the way, it's awful, and we see that, and I don't know that the extent of sin, in other words, there's not new sins being invented, but the intensity of it is getting worse, and it will. And we're seeing that all around us. And again, we think, well, how can that be? How can they think this way? And the Bible gives us the answer. And so the conclusion that we come to is, you know what? When we see all this around us that is going on, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. 
For it is the way of the world, it's the way they think. And of course, verse 19 is the second thing, acting like the world. They have given themselves over to lewdness. This means open shamefulness. Paul talks about that in detail in Romans 1. And improper thinking always results in improper actions. Notice the three words he gives in verse 19. Lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. Lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. Now let me ask you another question. Are these three characteristics found in the world today? Absolutely. They're found in our nation, but not just our nation. We go worldwide, and we see it all over. And again, it's a process of improper thinking. So what does this new walk look like? Well, in verses 20 to 24, uh, we uh, read those verses as well. And I need to go through this quickly. It says, the new, the new man knows the truth. The genuine Christian knows the truth. Now, again, Christian, where is that found? It's found in the book that you hold in your hands. Don't let anybody ever tell you that, well, you know, we have to be, we have to be uh, uh, a little, uh, you know, careful that we don't say that we have a monopoly on the truth after all. And you probably hear people tell you this in your workplace or maybe you have even some family members who might would say the same thing, who said, well, you know, look, you can't say that, that this is absolute truth because, after all, we're all as humans headed to the same destination. We're just traveling different paths in order to get there. You ever heard that before? My friends, I'm going to say this as kindly as I can. That is a doctrine of the devil. That's the doctrine of Satan. And it's not true. Listen. I will say that, and again, in our age where, again, there is all, uh, all of this, this idea that there is more than one truth, the Bible says it very plainly, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And there is no other way under heaven which men can be saved except Jesus Christ. My friends, look. We need to understand that's exclusive. We never back down on that. That's a non-negotiable of Christianity. And we need to stand firm on that. It doesn't matter what the secular world, and especially the media, or the so-called academics say about it. That is absolute truth, and those who are in Christ know that to be true. <laughs> they know that to be true. It's found in the Word of God. The new man is renewed in his mind. There is a process of that renewing. There's the transformation of that mind. Romans 12, 1. He says, uh, the, we're transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's that metamorphosis is the word there. We're changed from the inside out. And that change affects the mind and it affects everything else. It's the idea of putting on and putting off, as Paul will talk about. And the goal, of course, is righteousness and holiness. The next section here, and my time is fleeting rapidly, but we have in verses 25 through 32, we have seven commands. Seven commands. So let me give them to you. So what are the commands of this new walk? What does it, here is what it is answering. What does this look like? 
And there are, there are several epistles in the New Testament that would fall in line or give answer to that question. James is one of them. Here is a section in which we answer that question by Paul saying, first of all, and he gives this list, and Paul was known, if you read his epistles and you know him well, many times at the end of his epistles, he almost has a a rapid machine gun fire way of saying, okay, are you ready? And he he just lists them off one after another. And he's doing that to get their minds stimulated. Once again, these are believers who probably already knew many of these things, but he's giving them reminders. We don't like reminders sometimes, do we? (laughs) Well, I already know it. I've already heard it. Okay. Uh, Husbands are especially notorious of that. Don't remind me, wife. I, I, I know that. Okay. Now, men, don't look at me that way. You know that's the truth. Okay. Uh, We don't like reminders, but he's giving us reminders here. And by the way, you'll find that over and over again in the New Testament. Reminding believers of what they ought to look like. And I'm not just talking about outward clothing. I'm talking about what they ought to look like in their character. And so he gives it to us. Verse 25, he says, and this is important for us, therefore put away lying Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And so the first thing is speak honestly. Speak honestly. Pastor Gray, is that really a problem for believers? Yep. Look, when we get to the point where we don't think that we can commit the sins that are listed or uh, in the Bible, we're on dangerous thin ice, spiritual thin ice. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. There is no sin that we're not all capable of committing except by the grace of God. And so let us not think that we can't do it. We need to learn to speak honestly with one another. It's a problem. And the Bible has much to say about the tongue and the lips, and he's going to get into that. In verses 26 and 27, look at this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, there we look at that and and immediately we say, well, that seems like a contradiction. (laughs) How can we do that? He's talking about what we would call righteous indignation. And we had better be careful about what we define as righteous indignation. Because not everything that we are angry about can be fit into the spiritual aspect of that. Is there sinful anger? Yes, there is. And some have problems with that. Maybe I'm speaking to some of you who have problems with anger of the sinful kind. But there's also a spiritual kind. In fact, I would say this, that if there are those who can't get righteously indignant about some of the things that they see and hear and some of the things they see against our God and His Word and the church, then something's wrong. But we'd better be sure it's done in the right way. And we better be sure that the righteous anger, indignation, is motivated by a right heart. I came across the paragraph in a book uh, that your pastor gave me uh, a few months ago, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's, it's entitled Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I would recommend it to you. And note what he says here. He says, are you angry today? Let us not be too quick to assume our anger is sinful. After all, the Bible positively orders us to be angry when the occasion calls for it. We read that. 
Perhaps you have reason to be angry. Perhaps you've been sinned against. And the only appropriate response is anger. Be comforted by this. Jesus is angry alongside you. He joins you in your anger. Indeed, he is angrier than you could ever be about the wrong done to you. You're just your your just anger, uh, just anger, excuse me, is a shadow of his, and his anger unlike yours has zero taint of sin in it. As you consider those who have wronged you, let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted. For it is an anger that springs from his compassion for you. The indignation he felt when he came upon the mistreatment of others in the Gospels is the same indignation he feels now in heaven upon mistreatments of you. In that knowledge, and here's, here's the important part of that statement if you're reading along with me. In that knowledge, release your debtor and breathe again. In other words, don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge. You'll never be effective if you hold a grudge. In fact, the Bible is even more serious than that. If you can't forgive somebody, you know what? You're walking in a spiritual state of where your father is not going to forgive you. That's serious. That's very, very serious. And some who have anger issues with another person or personality or whatever, you may be walking in that state right now. We don't like to think about it, but it's true. And he, 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 uh, he ends that. He said, let Christ's heart for you not only wash you in his compassion, but assure you of his solidarity and rage against all that distresses you, most centrally death and hell. What a statement this, that is. That is the right kind of anger with the right kind of heart attitude. He says in verse 28, live with integrity. Live with integrity. Let him who stole steal no longer. And he goes on to talk about that. Live honestly, in other words. Do Christians have trouble with that? Yes. Yes, they do. And they better make sure, Christians, and I'm speaking to all of us in this room, we better make sure that when we go into the secular workplace where you are surrounded with those who do not think as you do because they do not know Christ, You'd better have the, the, the testimony of integrity and live that way. Verse 29 is important. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification. Why? That it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, that's an important verse, and it reminds me of two things. First of all, it reminds me of the fact that oftentimes adults do not put into practice what they try to teach young children. Have you ever thought about that? We teach little children, be careful little mouth what you say or tongue or whatever it is. And uh, we go, we, you know, we teach them the motions. And we, we teach, there are all kinds of good little songs that we teach children. Most of you know them. But the problem with us as adults is that oftentimes we very rarely apply them consistently. And then we get upset when our kids act like we are and do what we do. The second thing it reminds me of is my own children. You say, oh, good, a Brad story. <laughs> no, it's actually going to be all three of them. But I remember taking trips uh, and all three of them in the back seat, and uh, especially 
um, on long trips, you know how that is. They begin to become territorial. And all of a sudden, you have a three-battle front that is amassing in the back seat. And they start going at it, okay? And the thing I remember is their mother who would start to sing one of those little songs to them. And it would get their attention because then they would say, Oh, Mom, will you quit singing? Or something uh, of that nature, okay? But she would sing songs about the tongue and the mouth and so forth and so on. We all have trouble with it. There's not a person who does. In the 50 years of ministry that my dad had, he would often say this. He said, I've never pastored a church where this has not been a problem with believers. He never pastored a church. All for a church, and I'm not picking on you because it's in mine as well, and it's in every other church that ever exists because we're all the flesh, but all for a church that would get serious about the danger of the tongue. All we have to do is go back to James chapter 3. What does he say about it? He said, this little member, (laughs) this little member, it can be responsible for what? Absolute destruction. Did you realize that one member (laughs) who has the littlest member in his mouth can destroy whole ministries? Did you realize that? I've seen it. Growing up as a pastor's kid, I've observed it. I've seen it. And I've experienced it. And James says, and I don't think he's exaggerating, he says, those who can't control the tongue, they, they set the whole world on fire. You better learn to control the tongue. And by the way, it's very interesting, his conclusion. He says, if you can learn to control this member, and it's a challenge, he says, you can control the rest of you. You will be able to be more disciplined in every area of your life if you can control the tongue. Very few master that. It's destroyed churches. It will destroy every church if we are not careful. And he talks about, he he begins by saying, no corrupt communication. Again, MacArthur gives this, this definition, and he gives a general one, but I think it fits. Unwholesome language should be as repulsive to us as a rotten apple or a spoiled piece of meat. Off-color jokes, profanity, dirty stories, vulgarity, double entendre, and every other form of corrupt talk should never cross our lips. I would agree with that. This also includes the respectable sin of gossip. Again, there is in, there, there's, a, there's a, a great book entitled Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate by Jerry Bridges. I think you ought to get that book. And he has a whole chapter on gossip. Again, it will be an absolute destroyer. I've seen it. And again, as a pastor of nearly 25 years, I've experienced it. And if you're here today and you have problems with it, you need to ask God before you partake of this table this morning to forgive you and help you with it. It will destroy you. It will destroy this church. And gossip usually will come in two main forms. It will come in the form of a prayer request. 
you know, would you pray with me about a certain situation? There it is. Wrong. I need to get some counsel and advice on a certain situation. And so we let loose. Wrong. And here's the thing. It's, it, it's not... We, we look at it like this. Well, I am just doing what I believe God called me to do. No, it's a sin. It's an absolute sin, and we need to face up to it. And Paul is telling the believers here, he says, Look, you had better understand that this shouldn't come out of your mouth because we are all one in Christ. The only thing that should come out of our mouth is that which is good to the use of edifying. What does that word mean? You know what it means. To build up. To build up. Pastor Gray, are you saying that we should keep our mouths shut unless we're building up others? Yep. There you go. My dad was, and, and Brad can tell you stories about his grandfather, my dad was a, very, a man of very few words. I wish I could be like him. I miss him. But my dad was the kind, you remember, some of you older folks in here remember the commercial when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. That was my father. <laughs> he didn't say a whole lot, but when he did, you listened. And I, I think about it so often, I think, man, I wish I could be like that. Man, I wish I had that, that discipline where I could be like that. I think more Christians need to be. I think, you know, quite frankly, I've thought about this a lot. We, we live in a world that we just talk too much. You ever thought about that? We actually have radio stations where it's talk radio. And so we not only talk, we listen to people who talk. What a world. You know what would be nice? Silence. Silence. No wonder we can't meditate. But look what Jerry Bridges says. Gossip is spreading of unfavorable information about someone else, even if that information is true. Slander is making a false statement or misrepresentation about another person that defames the person's reputation. We slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. In other words, we need to get better at giving the benefit of the doubt to people. Critical speech is negative comments about someone that may be actually true but doesn't need to be said. Uh, we'd have to say that, that any speech that tends to tear down another person, either someone we are talking about or someone we are talking to, is sinful speech. And we need to understand, folks, that we're held accountable for the words that we speak, and by the way, and type. You cannot sit behind the anonymity of a keyboard and do not think that God is not going to keep account of those things that we communicate. And we forget about this that he says in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, but I say unto you that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it at, in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. That is serious. But we justify it, we, we, we explain it away, or we rationalize it as believers. <laughs> well, my gossip really wasn't gossip. It was about helping. No, it's sin. 
And I've been guilty of it. And I would guarantee you that everybody in here at some point in time has been. And we need to guard that. We need to, we need to guard against it uh, with all that we can do. He says, that which is for edification. Speech always should build up. Why? That it may impart grace to the hearers. We are to be constant reflectors of the grace that has been given to us. And if we're not, that's a problem. We are to act spiritually and not grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 30. Uh, We are to get rid of the spiritual weights in verse 31. It's part of the putting on and putting off process. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? He says, therefore, he says, based upon what we have just learned about those great people of the Old Testament and those who had a, 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 a life of faith, were to shed those weights, those spiritual weights that easily beset us. I think if it could be seen, if the spiritual weights could be visibly seen, most of us in this room would be weighted down. And we add to it. And we add to it. And then again, we add to it. And what does Paul say? He says, you need to take them off. You need to get rid of the weights because you can't run effectively. Have you ever seen a 100-meter sprinter before he gets ready to sprint? Have you ever seen one uh, in the Olympics uh, reach down and put on ankle weights? Well, that's ridiculous, and, and that would be stupid for him to do that. Absolutely, but we do that every day as believers. We run this race, and we're putting on ankle weights and other weights, and we think, why can't I be victorious? Why am I not joyful and happy in the Lord, no matter my circumstances? Because we're, we're taking the weights and we're piling them on. And some of us have them strapped on right now. No wonder. No wonder. That's not the mark of a new man. And then he goes through that list, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice. Notice he talks, he goes back to the tongue again. And then he ends with this. And, and again, this, this is the one that reminds me of the song my wife used to sing to the kids. I'm not going to sing it. Maybe I should have her come up here and sing it. But isn't it interesting? We'll quote this verse to our kids. But adults have a hard time practicing it. It's so simple. But what does he say in verse 32? He says, and be kind to one another. I've often read that phrase, and I think, here's Paul having to remind believers, adults, of something that is so basic, or we might in our Christian terms call it, that's kindergarten Christianity. That's kindergarten Christianity, and some of us haven't gotten past that. That should be a given, shouldn't it? And be kind to one another. Why? Well, he adds something else. And tenderhearted, a tenderhearted spirit, a forgiving heart. Why? He gives it again. Even as God in Christ forgave you. If he was so willing to forgive those who put him on that cross, 
Should we not be anxious and eager to forgive those and to be kind and compassionate as he was to those who may have wronged us? Well, Pastor Gray, you just don't understand. That person in church last Sunday, they looked at me with a weird look. And I just don't think I can get over it. Okay. You know what that means? You're still in kindergarten. And it's time for us as believers to grow up. That's kindergarten Christianity. Well, or they said something and, and it just didn't sit right with me. Okay. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they had a bad morning. Maybe they spilled their Cheerios all over the floor or something. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it was, you know, they're, they're going through a tough time internally, and you don't know that because they've never shared it with anybody. You see, we again sign motives, and we, we begin to think about all these things. Well, well, it just shouldn't be this way. I don't deserve that. Well, we don't deserve anything. We'd better start maturing in our faith. The Christian life is not supposed to be this way. <laughs> Christian life, the new walk in Christ is supposed to be what? It's supposed to be joyful? It's supposed to be happy despite the circumstances, despite the things that are done to me or said about me. The, the, the new life in Christ is supposed to be that which is joyful. People around here in the hamlets of Pennsylvania here should see Christ reflected in how you smile and how you act and how you carry yourself? Or do they see and they say, well, whatever that person has, I don't know if I want that. It should be, that person's different. And you know what makes you different? It's because you're walking different if you're a child of God. You're thinking different. You're acting different. That's the walk of the new man. I thought about a chorus. I've given you the words here. A little chorus that says, New life in Christ, abundant and free. Isn't that true? What glory shine. What joys are mine. What wondrous blessings I see. But yeah, but you know, things are just terrible. No, you can't sing it that way. What blessings I see. Do you count your many blessings, name them one by one? How many of you sung that chorus over and over again for years and never counted them one by one? You know what I did a year ago? I was convicted by that because I'd never done that either. either. So I got myself a little book, a little black book. And every day I try to write at least one thing I'm thankful for. Just one simple little thing. And so... I can now sing that song with a better conscience. But you know the problem a lot of times is that we think about all the negative and we never think about all the blessings. Folks, the fact that you're here this morning, the fact that you have a good church to go to, the fact that you have a preacher who preaches the word of God, the fact that you are saved and on your way to heaven, and by the way, that's guaranteed. Uh, You know, we have a lot to be thankful for.
what blessing, what wondrous blessings I see. My past with its sin, the searching and strife. Some of you remember that. Forever gone. There's a bright new dawn. For in Christ, I have found new life. There it is. I would say this as we approach this table this morning. That is what you need to remember. That is what you need to recall. And we need to be of all people most joyful because we are and we do have this new walk, this new life in Christ.